Uh, yeah, I would expect everyone would be outside today. It's such a beautiful day. Um, so I am going to talk about how to not run with scissors. Um, I love data. I love data journalism. There's a lot of amazing stuff going on, but there's also a lot of um, disregard for really vetting and looking hard at data. So um, I'm on a mission to help people uh, better vet their data. Um, it is never gonna be perfect, but, um, and I'm sure nothing I've done is perfect, but we wanna do our best job that we can to be aware of some of the problems we can have in data and to make it um, better because accuracy in this world today is very important. And when I see a big mistake, somewhere it makes my heart break for all of journalism. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want us making um, mistakes. So data is very cool. Um, it's amazing. Um, big data is all the talk. Um, this is not recent. Um, Everyone wants to do it. I talk to a lot of editors and newsrooms who like, we want a data person to do the data thing. And they don't really even know what it is. So um, there's a lot of different aspects of how we use data in journalism. Not everyone has to look like this. Um, but it's pretty cool to look like this these days. Um, but with that superpower of being able to analyze data comes great responsibility. We have to do it right. Um, so in journalism, we deal with a lot of government data. Um, we often have to fight for it or scrape it off government websites or even build it ourselves. But when we get that data, it's often very, very messy. Um, and I like to get as granular of data as possible because then I can find where the problems are. Here's an example of data we just got for Chicago um, campaign spending data for Illinois. And this is just the various ways they spell Chicago. Um, and then that's just the top of the city field. So um, it's very messy. Kudos to Illinois for their data collection. Um, so when we, when we talk about data journalism, data can play a variety of roles and stories. We might be just reporting on others' analyses um, or adding a fact to a story to enhance it um, or to try to contradict an assumption. Um, but a lot of times data is the very basis for the story or investigation. And in many of those stories, you might not even know that it's based on data unless you read the methodology. Um, so it doesn't mean that they have to be boring stories that don't have people um, that data can provide the foundation. Um, so reporting on studies. This was a um, report that came out um, a few years ago where a study had shown that if they put an Elmo sticker on an apple, more children would choose to eat it over a cookie. Um, but when folks started digging into the study, they found a lot of problems with it. They found that, they, well, the study reported that it was eight to 11-year-olds when the kids they actually did it with were three to five. Um, and so there were just a lot of problems. You would not know that unless you really read the methodology and you really knew how they did it. Um, so that's why we need to dig in and not just assume that something is correct. So when we're reporting on um, polls or surveys, I always ask for the sample size because 
Um, I've run into issues with, um, particularly at ProPublica, looking at some medical studies, where the sample size of this great thing they found um, was 10 people. Um, so we do have to be careful about that. Um, as for the methodology or questionnaire, if they won't give it to you, that's a red flag in itself. Um, they should be willing to share that information. And look for simil similar research and see if similar studies have found um, things that, that trend the same way. Um, before you just share, I mean, part of this is so hard because now you can like share on Twitter everything. Um, and I always read, before I, before I retweet something, um, I really do read it um, because I don't want to just trust that I'm resharing and, and um, perpetuating something that might not be right. Um, so with data, when we do our own analysis, the two things that we have to do is background the data just like we would background somebody we we're reporting on. If we're reporting on a person, we're going to um, background them and find out if, you know, what they've done, if they're okay. I mean, even for feature stories, that's super important. Um, I always told my reporters about the story of um, sex offender minister. I was doing the story about a church that got foreclosed on in Baltimore, and the, the um, people in his church were coming together to help him find a new church, and um, it was a great story about how the foreclosure hit that area. Um, and then I did a background check, and he was on the sex offender registry. So I had to sit down with him and ask him if there was anything about his past I needed to know about. He did tell me, but we, in the end, decided not to use him. Um, it was a, like, 21-year-old boyfriend with a 17-year-old girlfriend, but we decided to not even go there. Um, you also have to interview the data like you would interview people. You have to ask it a lot of questions. Um, ask it in different ways to see if it gives you the same answer. Um, so if we think of data as a subject or a story, um, the process is very similar. Um, so a friend of mine always used to tell me, know thy data. Um, you cannot assume that um, you know everything about the data. So every column or field that's in the database, even if it looks boring or unimportant, could be very, very important. I'll show you an example of that. Um, know what you can do with it, but what you can't do with it, too. Like how much the data can say. Um, and know the source. Occasionally I'll have a student, no Oregon student would do this, I'm sure, tell me that they got their data from the internet. That's not a source. Um, I mean, you can get data from the internet, but the source is the agency that provided it or whoever produced the data. Um, vet it. Um, after you do your analysis, check it. Check it again, check it again, check it again. Bounce it off others. I mean, sometimes we're just sorting a spreadsheet or doing a calculation. So I'm, I'm talking about more complex analyses, um, but we can never do too much checking. Um, so this is um, a mocked up example of a database that used to exist that I don't have anymore, um, what the federal uh, contracting data used to look like. And it had a column for the recipient and the agency the description, the amount of the contract, and then there was a status field that was A or B. And several organizations just like added up the agencies and how much money they gave and looked at recipients and how much money they all got and ignored status because it looks boring and it doesn't look important. So I just assume I don't need that. But what status meant was if it was an A, the amount was positive. But if it was a B, the amount was negative. So it was very, very crucial to any analysis. 
Um, campaign spending data is a little bit tricky in this way too, in that if you have a database of all of the campaign spending um, for a candidate or for a community, oftentimes there is both what was purchased and the credit card payment. So if you add it all up, you're double counting the money. Most of that data has a way to figure out which is which, but you need to know to separate that stuff out. Um, so this is actually something one of my students brought to me. She wanted to do analysis of um, University of Wisconsin employees and to say, and not, it wouldn't be surprising to me if it were the case, sorry, audio people, um, that men get paid more. Um, so they did the average female employee, the average male employee, and then the other category, and then unknown. Is that enough to be able to generalize that statement? What else would she want to know? Yeah, what positions are they? Um, how long have they been there? What their experience is? You have to control for a lot of stuff. Um, otherwise, you could be making assumptions that might actually not be true. Um, knowing the source of your data is super important. Here's a story about how In-N-Out is the most popular fast food chain in Texas based on Foursquare data. Um, and what they found, um, so In-N-Out Burger, you know, if, if, has anybody lived in Texas? What's the real, Whataburger is the real popular chain there. Um, but Texans don't like sharing their location on Foursquare. And so it wasn't, the Whataburgers weren't getting counted. I mean, I would question the whole notion of using Foursquare data anyhow for data analysis. Um, but there was something going on that they weren't counting for when they, when they said In-N-Out was the most popular food chain in Texas. And this was a very big story in Texas, In-N-Out. Um, this is a warning about, um, it's like, we'll get to some positive stuff. Um, I'm, these, these are all the warnings. Um, so one of our uh, interns at Reveal a few years ago wanted to look at fire inspection data. So he went to the San Francisco city portal and downloaded the city portal's fire inspection data. Every city has a data portal now. States have data portals. There's data.gov. There's all these great sites. Um, unfortunately, a lot of agencies don't take those sites so seriously, so they'll throw some data up there, but it may not be the actual data that they work with. Um, and what he found, he worked with that data and then went to talk to the San Francisco Fire Department and they said, that data is bad, you can't use it, get our data. And that has happened quite a few times when we've used data off public portals. So I just like to be careful to try to go to the actual original source, the primary source for that data. Um, and just remember, data is always dirty. There's always something in it. It doesn't mean you can't use it. It just means you have to account for it. So simple things like how many records should you have and do you have them all? Um, this used to be a bigger deal a long time ago when Excel would only hold like 76,000 records. And if you got a database from an agency and it had exactly like 76,564, you knew that they just like limited out in Excel. Um, not so much a problem these days, but we've still had agencies where they don't give us all the records or they accidentally have a filter turned on on their data when they export it. Um, 
So oftentimes, if there's an annual report or summary report, you can compare the raw data to that summary report to see if you have the same thing. Um, we were doing a project on fumigation of strawberry fields in California when I was at Reveal, <coughs> and one of my reporters pulled the uh, data off the pesticide agency's uh, website to start looking at um, where certain chemicals were used to fumigate fields. Um, and what she found is the data wasn't adding up to um, what the summary reports were saying. So I suggested she call whoever in the agency actually works with this data day to day that really know the data. And she talked to some guy who said, oh, the data on the website, that's the bad data. We have the good data, and we'll give you that. Um, but doing that check allowed us to figure that out. Um, so I check things like, is the data within reasonable ranges? Um, are things too high or too low? If you have dates of birth, would people be too old or too young to be in the database? What's missing from the data? Are there inconsistencies? So this is data from, was anyone in the data class for you? So we looked, we looked at this a little bit in the data class earlier. This is the US Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights data set. This is just one of the tables that looks at access to advanced placement classes. According to the College Board, I think there's like 39 possible AP classes that a school can offer. So this is how many these schools are offering. 12-12, um, that's way more courses than they could offer. Um, so when I was working with this data, I went back to Department of Education and they said, oh, well, when we built the entry form online, we, didn't, we couldn't put any like standards and what people could enter, so people could just enter anything, you know, and the second person's probably their sixth key got stuck on their computer because they got coffee on it, and um, so they should have had something where anybody enters anything like larger than 40, it says error, error, this isn't a valid number, but they did not do that. Um, so we needed to go back and call all these schools to see how many classes they actually offered, um, and if we could not get that information, then just not use that, that data for those schools. But we had to caveat that and disclose that's what we were doing. <clears throat> Missing data. A lot of the schools did not report enrollment data. Um, so again, we needed to go back to the district or the school to get that information or not use it. Um, inconsistencies. So as you saw with my Chicago example, um, all data, this is a big problem in all databases where, so I've got ActBlue, which is a federal payroll company. There's a, like 10 different versions of ActBlue, but a computer doesn't put those all together. Um, it sees them as separate. Um, yeah, so there's here we have um, bridge data. And I, I was looking at this and I thought, yeah, these are all aggregated. Um, and I'm like, these are not the same. What is different? There's a space right there um, that makes them different. Um, yeah, because computers count everything. Um, we also can do internal checks with the data um, and external checks with the data. So internal checks with the data might be um, in a contracting database, subcontractors getting more than 
the primary contractor, which shouldn't be possible. Um, external checks. Um, does, does it make sense in light of other types of data that this would be happening? Check for duplicates. Um, look at changes over time. And often there are standards, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, of what, sh what are reasonable increases and decreases. And then just a gut check, does it seem right? Um, I talked about this in an earlier class, so I apologize if you heard this, but I have a friend who calls that the, have you ever seen a Lazo-Opso test? Um, so one of her colleagues was doing an analysis of pet data to find the most common pet, and he came up with the Lazo-Opso, to which she said, have you ever seen one? Like, it doesn't seem that that's the most common common pet, and what had happened is there was a disconnect in his spreadsheet, and it was actually the Labrador. Um, and then what else do we need to think about? There's all kinds of other, um, I kind of go into these projects like, how could I get screwed up by this data? Well, how could this data make my life horrible? Um, so internal checks on the education data, we've got schools that have more teachers than students. There may be cases where that's possible if there's a specialized school or an alternative school that has more teachers, but usually that's not the case. Um, this is one of my students who was looking at um, traffic tickets in DC, and one thing I always have them do is try to find duplicates, and the ID numbers were not duplicated, but when we looked at the date and the time and the location, they were, except for the description was null on one of them all. So there was a second record for every single um, ticket in there, and the second one was null. It turned out that there was some glitch in their computer system and it was creating a second record, but you would be counting way, way, way more accidents um, if you didn't know that. Increases over time. So this is truck accident data in Texas. <clears throat> And what I was told by researchers is if, if there's people who study this topic is if there's an increase of more than 10% or a decrease of more than 10% from year to year, then they're probably like changed how they report the data or somebody forgot to put something in. So for Houston, you know, I'm not gonna do a story that says, wow, Houston's really safe now. It's dropped down to 48 accidents. Um, anything like that, if I see that, I'm immediately going to want to go and figure out what's going on. And then there's the unknown. So this, there's a book um, by Jordan Ellenberg called How Not to Be Wrong, which I put out prominently on my um, table in my office for my students. Um, and he has this great example in there with when the military was trying to study um, where they should put the extra armor on planes because it's heavy and they didn't want to put it everywhere. And so they were examining where the holes in the, um, were on the plane when they came back. Um, and they had the rate of holes were, you know, 1.11 on the engine, the fuselage, fuel system, and the rest of the plane. Um, so where do you think they ended up putting uh, the armor. Mm 
So these were planes that came back. Um, and so the planes that didn't come back were um, actually shot mostly in the engine um, because they were shot down. And so that's where they put the protections, um, even though that is the lowest rate of holes because the rest of the planes didn't come back. So just like thinking logically, what am I missing here? <clears throat> Again, if, if there's codes in your data you don't understand or questions you don't understand, you need to get them answered. Um, I don't like to assume or think I know because I will be wrong. Um, if I'm using data that's a sample, there's probably a margin of error. So like census American Community Survey data, there's a margin of error in that data. So we have to be aware of that. Um, are changes over time reasonable? Again, um, how else could you look at the data? Um, and can you physically go look at one? So this is, again, our education data. We'll come back to it one more time. Um, anything look weird in here? And if you were in the data class, don't say. So L, column L is the number of AP courses. So you think minus nine is a good number of AP courses? No. Um, and what it was is the agency was using it as a flag that they did not have the data. Minus nine was their flag. Sometimes you'll have data where, like I've had data where it's like minus 999 is a flag for we don't have it. So finding out what their flags are for we don't have the data is super important. Um, and the provide AP, which is one or zero for one we, give, we have AP, or um, zero we don't, minus nine means that they don't have the information. Um, ranges of data and margins of error. So this is median household income by metro area. And when I worked at newspapers, my editors always wanted me to like do a chart of who has the most, who's the highest. The problem with data that has a margin of error is I'm pretty safe saying San Jose, Sunnyfield, Santa Clara is at the top. But when it comes to the next two, either of those could be second. The next one, pretty safe, but then the rest, those all could occur at different spots because the margin of error, the estimate is the red dot, the margin of error is a blue line. So it could occur anywhere in that, um, in that line. So it's, I think it's pretty risky just like charting things where you know that they might be flipped around. Um, and go often go look at one. If I can actually go out and physically look at my data, I try to do that. Um, so this is bridge inspection data for Dallas, Texas. Um, we were looking at it and we found the Sylvan Trinity River Bridge had a rating of five and six. So the anything below 50 is really, really bad. So five and six is really bad. So we were like, oh, well, this is an important story. We need to talk about how the bridge is rated so poorly and yet people are driving over it. But they closed the bridge because <laughs> this is what it looks like. <laughs> um, so people weren't driving over it, but it, clearly it needed to be fixed. So that's why it's important to go look at one. 
Um, correlations. So we throw around correlation like the word and. Um, we say things correlate, but correlation is really a measure. And also, there can be what are called spurious correlations, where things go up and down together but may not be related at all. Um, so this is a website called Spurious Correlations, where he tracks all kinds of kind of funny correlations. So um, crude oil imports correlate strongly with per capita consumption of chicken. That doesn't mean there's some hard-hitting story there. Per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese. Uh, correlates with civil engineering doctorates awarded. So there are a lot of things that correlate. So like um, the, the number of storks and the number of babies correlate really strongly. Um, if you look at them across cities and over time. Um, but what do you think that's a proxy for? Where are there lots of storks? Cities, tall buildings, where are there lots of babies? In cities. Um, so it's really just a proxy of the population. Mapping. So when we do mapping analysis, the world is not shaped the same in every map. So that first map, um, because everything we do on a map, we're trying to take something that is a sphere and put it out flat. So some maps are developed to help people sail across the ocean. Some maps are designed to hold area steady. Some maps are designed to hold shape steady. So these are two different, what are called projections of maps. Um, but any analysis I do using a map, um, so if I did like a radius analysis, which this is, it could actually shift by quite a bit and give me the wrong data depending on how my map was projected. So I have to be aware of that. And a lot of that comes to communicating with the people I got the data from, like what projection should I use this in? What, you know, understanding um, the nature of the data when you get it from the agency. Matching data, this is where we run into more problems. Um, a name is not unique. Um, this is the first, middle, and last name of Texas state employees um, and account. So all of these people have the same name. Um, this was an argument we had when at, at one point Texas was going to eliminate the date of birth of public employees from the public record. Um, and we were fighting that, and so this was our example. Um, it also so happened that the head of the committee who was hearing um, the bill had the same first, last, and middle name as someone with a felony conviction, so that was helpful. <laughs> but a name's not enough. We need to try to have an address or a date of birth or some other way to identify people because even seemingly unique names, my name seems pretty unique, are not. Um, and Jennifer LaFleur, the actress, is getting way better parts now, so she's way upping me um, on Google. Um, and one day I was going to demonstrate the Maryland court data, and I, and I said, well, let's look at what happens when somebody isn't in the database. So I put my name, Jennifer A. LaFleur, also born in March, but a different year, um, in the data. Oh, yeah, two uh, felony assaults. 
Um, that is not me. <laughs> but I was also living in Baltimore at the time, so it was a little frightening. This will probably come up if anyone ever backgrounds me. Um, so how to, how to account for all this is hard. So if you are in a newsroom where you have a team, what we did on my team at Reveal is we had a backstop rotation. So someone had to backstop somebody else. Um, and at some point, which is not the most fun job there is, but then they would have to backstop you on your project. We would hold meetings that we called code reviews where the whole team would look at what, what um, program was written and what analysis was done and we'd all kind of just discuss it together. Um, and it was because everybody trusted everybody else on the team. We weren't trying to um, make them feel bad. We were trying to make them better and make our analyses better. Um, I have a lot of friends who work in newsrooms where they don't have somebody else they can bounce um, their analyses off of. And so I've often reviewed analyses for, for friends at other publications, um, which I'm happy to do because people did that for me when I was starting out. Um, Training more people in the newsroom, I think, is important. Um, most newsrooms have a, still have a very, very low level of data literacy. Um, I was telling some students earlier that if you can do a pivot table in Excel, it's like you have magic powers. Um, so we need to up that level. Um, bounce your analysis off experts. Um, and if you're doing data entry, and I know a few students were doing projects where they were doing data entry, you must either do double data entry, enter it twice, or have the second person do verification where they check every single entry. It's not enough to do spot checks. It's not enough to be careful. Something will get entered wrong. Um, and how we show the data also can just make it appear wrong. So I am not a design expert. <laughs> I, will say that. I will say that. These are just some examples um, I've found. And this I took off the TV. Um, this was the TSA unscheduled absences. But the way they did the chart, it makes it seem like it's a huge jump because the, the chart is from 0 to 10%. Um, anyone tell what's wrong with this one? It, it took me a while when I first looked at it. But the scale runs from 0 at the top to 873 at the bottom. And so what appears to be a drop is actually an increase. It should be flipped upside down. How about this one? Yeah, so um, the 43,000. A stick person stands for, four, uh, four stick people stand for 43,000 people, but then 28 people stand for an additional 3,000. So it is completely false because all you, if you divided the number of stick people by the number, it would be obvious that it was like, I, I, don't, I don't understand that one at all. Um, and this is, there's a book called um, How to Lie with Stick Statistics by Daryl Huff. It's an old Classic. It was out of print, and it's come back into print. Um, but he's got lots of examples like that. And so the first one is government roll payrolls up because the range is very big. Um, big. I mean, very small actually. Um, and then government payrolls stable. 
It's the same numbers, just put on a different scale. Um, and also pie charts. Okay. No reason to have a pie chart. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> maps can be super useful, but everyone likes maps. Um, so I encourage people to use maps when they actually can be useful. Um, I love this map. It was actually, um, they used data that um, was traditionally used for something else to, to track something. So in New York City, and this is actually when I was living there, um, a tornado came through. Um, and I was walking down the street on the phone with a friend of mine in Texas and saying, well, if I wasn't in New York, I would think there was going to be a tornado. Um, and I went inside, and a tornado came just through that whole area. It put a tree down the block from me through the uh, stained glass window of a church. Um, but there's no, they don't track tornadoes in New York because they don't normally get it. So the New York Times used 311 data for downed trees, plotted that to see where the path of the tornado went. So it's a unique way to use data. Um, also, just summary data. Um, this is the politics of pain, CPI and AP, looking at um, opioid bills and um, rates of prescribing state by state. Um, but again, not everything has to be a map. Um, okay. Watching your language. So sometimes when we write about data, um, we write with language that we think is appropriate, um, but not totally accurate when it comes to data. Significant actually has a meaning when it comes to data. So I think something's really important, so it's life significant, but it might not be significant data-wise. Again, though, there could be something that's very significant with data simply because there's a lot of items in my sample but really doesn't seem that significant to story. Um, likely. So one of our students was writing something where um, there was an occurrence in Washington, D.C., where women have a, there's a 10 percentage point higher rate than men. And the way she had it is, is that women were 10% more likely to have this thing happen. I said like, likelihood's actually a statistical measure at some point, but you can also just say women are 10 percentage points more. I mean, it makes it easier for people to understand. Um, correlation, again, per the spurious correlations, there's an actual statistical measure for correlation, um, so we should really use it sparingly. Um, I also see people mess up percent change versus percentage point difference per capita versus per 100,000. Um, the, what paper was it? Yeah, it was in Salinas. So the Mercury News years ago um, wrote a story that said the per capita homicide rate in Salinas, California was 350. Is that possible? per capita, per person, that means 300 people are killed for every person there. So either they're dumping bodies there or something is going on. 350 was actually just the raw number of murders. So the simpler we can explain data, the easier. Um, there's a book, that a beat book IRE puts out called Numbers in the Newsroom, and it talks about writing about numbers and how most readers can't handle more than like six digits in a paragraph. 
Um, so the less, um, every once in a while, I think we want to use a lot of numbers so we sound super important. Um, but it doesn't really help the reader. Also, like if we're writing about a poll that has a margin of error, if we say 22.87 people versus 35.92 people, we're portraying this precision that doesn't exist. We know there's a margin of error in the data, um, but yet we're making it seem like it's really precise when it's not. So the methodology. And this is beyond sorting a spreadsheet or doing simple calculations. How do you figure out a methodology? So I read research reports when I'm starting to embark on a new topic, because um, I'm trying to find an existing data model. I don't want to reinvent the wheel and come up with um, a way to do something. Other people have probably done something similar. Um, find an expert or a guide that can walk you through some of these things. Um, and show your findings to targets and experts, because I want holes poked in my data before I run a story, not afterwards. Um, again, check your work, duplicate your work, have another person duplicate your work. Um, use the IRE Resource Center, it's a great um, tool for just seeing what other stories folks have done, and every tip sheet anyone's ever presented at Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference um, is, is in their archive, so it's a really, really great resource. Um, so one thing we have done when I've worked at previous newsrooms, um, all my newspapers and at ProPublica and at um, Reveal, is do a white paper of our findings. Um, basically all the tables and all the findings um, and send that out to experts. So we did a project looking at um, racial disparities in presidential pardons and we did a white paper with all our findings and sent it out to a bunch of experts to get their feedback. Um, and you know, we would get things like, this is great, but I would suggest adding two other variables here because I think that they might change things. Um, and we tried to send it to people who are on both ends of the spectrum too. Um, I did a lot of work on jury selection when I worked in Texas. And one of our experts was um, a law professor at the University of Iowa um, who had done probably more work in that area than anyone else, but he was known to be as an anti-death penalty person. So we had to find some people from Texas to like counter him um, as an expert. Uh, IRE Resource Center, okay, I'm on the board. I'm saying too much about it. Um, it's a great tool. Um, one of the best things you can do if you're doing a data analysis, particular if you're in, in a newsroom where you might get pulled off and sent on something else, is to do a data diary and talk through, uh, write down everything you do, your file names, what you did, questions you had answered, um, so that in the end, you can duplicate your work if you need to and you have your notes. It's also helpful if you need to um, show your attorneys um, the analysis you did, or you need to write a white paper. Um, you have everything before you. And every time I do it, help somebody with a project, they always say, I really wish I would have done that data diary you talked about. But we get busy, we forget. We also do things like name our files, final, um, which is always a mistake. I had a friend in, in Dallas who used to, she'd call her file final, and then super final, and then super final two, 
And then they'd start having names like, kill me now, I hate my life. Um, workflow, you need to have a system for going through this in your newsroom or um, on your own and like what steps do you do to work with your data and how do you keep track of things? Um, especially if you're working with multiple people on a project, there are project management systems, but you can also just use a Google Doc um, or GitHub, um, which is a great tool for just tracking um, projects in addition to a good place to store programs. Um, the good news is that database stories actually can make a difference. Um, this is an AP story from a few years ago, won the um, Public Service Pulitzer Prize. Um, they built several databases looking at um, the fish fishing trade in um, Asia and found that many, many of the um, fishing companies actually used slaves to catch the fish. Um, and in the end, they were able to free 2,000 slaves um, from cages on islands in Asia. That's a pretty big impact. Um, we had a project where one of my colleagues was trying to, this is when I was working for uh, Reveal, was um, researching um, a case of an unidentified body in Texas, uh, I mean in Kentucky, and Mountain Jane Doe, they actually have since identified her, um, but then became very interested in unidentified and missing people. And there is data, government data, on unidentified bodies and missing people, but there's no way to work with that data together. So we wanted to fix that. So we built a tool called the Lost and the Found that allowed people to go through and actually try to find matches of data. Um, and if they did find a match, they would submit, click a thing and submit something to us. And the matches that were very strong, we then forwarded to law enforcement. And there's a few cases right now where they're actually trying to uh, get the DNA to solve the cases. So um, if some of these get solved, it would be really powerful. I also think there's a lot of opportunity to do this cross-border, um, but they did not get to that yet. Um, sometimes bad data itself is the story. Um, Tom Hargrove, who worked for Scripps News Service, did amazing things. He's actually now specifically working on a website about um, missing and unidentified bodies. Did this project on arson, where after talking to experts and looking at fire data, he basically found that many, many more um, fires were probably arson than we had normally thought. Um, he looked at a million fires and kept finding patterns that really pointed to the fact that these probably were arsons but never categorized as arsons. Um, so fires at unlucky buildings that kept having fires, um, fires at buildings that had foreclosures, um, fires that had multiple points of ignition, um, and fires in unoccupied or vacant buildings. Um, this is a missing data story. Uh, several newsrooms worked together to do this project on sexual assaults on campuses. Um, and what they found is the federal data that tracks, um, tracks these incidents was incomplete. So, um, a lot of the reports, so this is one where in West Virginia, this university, there were 46 incidents on campus, but none of them showed up in the report. Um, so the data 
particularly the national data that tracked this stuff, was just missing information. So they went back to, did you guys work on this too? It was a consortium of a bunch of universities. They um, went to health services and other places to fill in that data to show that the numbers were much higher than are reported by the federal data. Um, and then this is a simple one of bad data, but the, um, when the recovery board uh, did, was doing analyses of the stimulus data, um, they came out with this report that labeled recipients two-time losers for failing to report their um, updates on how they're using their funds. But when they joined the data, so they took the data of people's reports and their data, one version had dashes and one version didn't. They were the same number. They filed their reports. Uh, the recovery board just couldn't account for that little data cleaning thing. And so they accused all, all kinds of um, recipients of being two-time losers, um, which they were not. So that was kind of fun. Um, some resources. Uh, when I was at ProPublica, we put together a guide to bulletproofing your data. It is updated. It's on GitHub. People are adding to it all the time. So it's a good resource for that. Um, I mentioned already IRE's Numbers in the Newsroom um, Meetbook, um, which is a great resource for just talking about how to report on Numbers in the Newsroom and then how not to be wrong, um, Jordan Ellensburg. Um, and then another book that I didn't put up there that I also use a lot. I'm gonna see if I can stretch the microphone and not, um, which is um, John Allen Paulus, who's a math professor at Temple. Um, he wrote a book earlier called Enumeracy um, about how we wrongly interpret numbers. And he also has a book called A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, um, which is a really interesting read of how we portray numbers in the news. So um, it's interesting on, on a similar topic, so. Um, that is all I have, but I can be happy to answer questions, and hopefully that was useful. Um, so thank you for your attention.